It was Winston Churchill who famously said after the aerial battle of Britland in which the RAF defeated the much superior forces of the German Luftwaffe, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. John Stott, an English commentator, points out the truth that we're looking at here in Romans 5 brings us to a different conclusion. It's this, never have so many owed so much to only one person. Jesus Christ. He's done everything for us. What we've seen in the passages that we've been looking at, and particularly in verses 12 through 17, is that we are having revealed to us this idea, this understanding that Adam's one act of disobedience has unleashed a torrent of ever-expanding sin and judgment and death upon the world of men. We see the effects of that sin all around us. You have to just watch it add up. If you just are willing to, you can see it adding up throughout all the annals of history. You can see the same repeated offenses happening over and over again. They happen in the private lives of people. They happen in the corporate affairs of societies. They happen among the rulers of men. You see it happening over and over again, and the hits just keep on coming. Just open up your newspaper or watch the news, and it doesn't matter what slant you get it from. You'll still see these offenses adding up all around us and coming at us, and we can see it. We can see the the truth that through Adam's one offense has opened up this this fissure through which has poured in a a, a great tide, a, a great Niagara, a waterfall of sin that has come upon us all. But Paul tells us in verse 14... That Adam is a type of the one who was to come. Paul is saying Adam is a type of Jesus Christ, but he's a negative type. He's an inverted type of all that Jesus Christ will fulfill in the positive. He's the opposite of all that Jesus Christ does and will do. Where Adam starts a race of those who by his sin and because of his fallen nature and inheriting that fallen nature, he starts a race of corrupted and sinful individuals, people who are made sinners because of Adam's sin, Jesus proposes to start a new race of those who, by his one act of supreme obedience, having lived a perfectly righteous and sinful life, and then in obedience to God the Father, laying down his life for us upon the cross, would purify himself, not those who are now were made sinners through Adam, but now are purified and made saints through Jesus Christ. Adam began a successive and expanding legacy of judgment and condemnation and death. Jesus begins an expansive legacy of grace and blessing and life. Verses 18 and 19 point us to this great reversal that's taken place. And so just as you're looking now in your Bible, verses 18 and 19, what you see is that whereby Adam began this kind of parade of mounting evil that is all around us, for all of us are born out and have been born out of Adam's first sin. And we've all, by the way, in our own sins, paid that sin forward into the next generation. Yet at the same time, we see that by faith, we are being encouraged to believe and understand. Although Adam has begun this mounting procession of evil and sin, we're told that by faith, now we can begin to see and begin to envision and begin to unhold this idea of a new world that the Lord Jesus is bringing forward and that is coming And this will be an earth that will be filled with an abundance of those who are not under the judgment of death, but those who instead have gained the possession of a justified life, a life right with God, and a life that remains right with God. And that's the vision that's being given. It's kind of a hard vision to have in your mind. It's not what you're seeing. It's not what you're adding up. It's not how the score seems to be running and going right now in the 
trajectory, an ongoing trajectory of the world as we see it today. We see things down, winding down to an awful conclusion. And yet, Paul says, no, there's something else. There's a different vision to understand here. By Christ, one great act of obedience, there is now mounting up a gaining of momentum of a day that is going to arrive in which the, the prophet spoke about this. The earth shall be as full of the knowledge of God as the waters of the sea. That the waters of the sea that would one day, if we imagine if they all covered the earth and inundating Noah's time. At the same time, if you could understand that in this day, in this age, that now there's coming an age coming in which the earth will be flooded with the knowledge of God and the experience of God. That's what's being introduced to us. That's what we're being called to believe and set our hearts and our hopes upon. And now as we look at the world, we see that because of Adam's one act of disobedience, and we see this in, in verse 19, we're all born sinners. We're all made sinners. We're all made of this infected clay of sinful flesh. You remember that David in Psalm 51, when he confessed his sins, said that surely he was conceived in iniquity. Well, he wasn't in a sense present in that moment, but he's just indicating that this flesh that he inherited and that was passed on to him is a sinful and decrepit flesh. It, it resides and it moves and pulsates through all the cells of our fallen being. And that's what we were made and that's what we inherited from Adam. But we're being told now by faith, as we place our faith in Jesus Christ and his one act of supreme obedience, living that sinless life and laying that life down and sacrifice for our sins, we may be made righteous completely righteous before God. So powerful is this salvation that is at work through the Lord Jesus Christ that one day it will prevail over all the forces of sin and death and all those forces that we see now ruling over the age in which we live and that this free gift of salvation will work in such a way that one day it will repeal all of these things and will draw all the world into an age and to a time of perfect righteousness in Jesus Christ. Particularly now for us, we may experience this reversal. We may enter into this reversal by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And so the very first words of chapter 5 are, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's, by the way, something that Paul has said multiple times throughout the book of Romans. And Paul is getting back to it, and Paul reemphasizes that in verse 17. Look at verse 17 here, he says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more... Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. There's another statement of that faith that begins to bring about this reversal. And although, and I'll speak about this next week, something about how that reversal is to take place in an eschatological fashion, how it's to take place in the age to come, we're to recognize and understand that the power that brings it about can be operative in our lives right now. That that power that will one day transform the face of all God's creation can transform our lives, our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ alone. And that's what Paul is getting at. Now, this is a tremendous change. This is a great reversal. It's a reversal of all the corruption that we see in the world and all the evil that we see abounding around us. And, you know, we become aware of this more and more as we go along in our lives. We see it more and more. And it's hard not to become cynical of the environment around you, the world you live in, as you begin to see the mounting up of sin. And, and there was a time in youthful enthusiasm which we trusted our own individual powers to overcome those things. But as life goes by, we recognize it's not in myself. I might become a little more trained and I might be develop a little better patterns, but the fact is it's still in me. These impulses, this tendency towards sin, that 
tendency towards sin that is seemingly thrusting our world into darkness. And the thing that we're being asked to believe is that there's a reversal that's coming to us, coming to us and coming to the world through Jesus Christ, a tremendous reversal that's being sent to us now and can be sent to us in a heart of justifying faith and deep trust that God has loved us and God has given his life for us and God would redeem us through his work. Let's look at verse 6 through 10 again, just in terms of reviewing this passage. Here we see that Paul is expressing to us the profound love that God has expressed to us through his son, Jesus Christ, in dying for our sins. In verse 6, we see here that Jesus Christ has come to us when we were weak. Go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Here Paul writes, When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, if I understand this, we're being told here that the Lord Jesus came and found us and delivered his life for us and gave himself in death for our sins when he discovered that we were ungodly, not like God in any way, broken, fallen, tarnished in our sin. And the Lord Jesus came to us when we were transgressors and sinners who were willfully rebelling against him. And the Lord Jesus came and died for us. The the prime word here that's being emphasized over and over again is his death for us, that he gave his life for us, that he shed his blood for us. But he came and he gave his life for us when we were under the wrath of God, under the judgment of God and, and deserving of the wrath of God, pronounced as condemned sinners. That's what it's saying here. And then we see here not only that, that he has identified us, individuals who he gave his life for, as enemies of God, ungodly, sinners, facing the just wrath of God, enemies of God. And God loved us so much that he gave his life for us. The Bible actually says that when God came to us and he identified us in the way to die for us, he chose to interact with us in this condition, without strength, incapable of saving ourselves, not simply as the ungodly refuse of the fallen, broken image of God, not simply as defiant transgressors to his will, not simply as those who are identified as condemned and deserving of his wrath, not identifying and interacting and engaging us as enemies of God, but he mercifully comes to us and engages us as they can't save themselves. They're without strength, such as the love of God giving himself for us through Jesus Christ. And it's through that great act of love and giving his life for us and laying down his life for us that he begins to reverse the tendency and the order that is going up and mounting up in the world because of the sinful act of Adam. Back in 1812, in February of 1812, there was an earthquake along the New Madrid Fault that's down there along the Mississippi River. And it was said that it was so powerful that it formed an 18-mile lake. And those who labored along the Mississippi said that the Mississippi River began to flow backwards. Began to flow backwards. Now, what we're being asked to believe is that the great flow of sin that we see like that massive flood, that massive Niagara that is coursing through all of creation, and we see it all around us, we're being called to believe that in the cross of Jesus Christ, something has taken place, and a, a back current has developed, and that one day all of creation 
And all the peoples of the earth will magnify the beauty of Christ in his own perfect righteousness and goodness. And that's coming now. If you can believe that, I mean, if you can believe that, then you should be able to believe that Christ has done everything necessary in the cross to make you right, to wash you and cleanse you and transform you and deliver you. And if you believe that through that work of the cross, he has begun this great work that reverses all the flow, Paul says, that Adam initiated. And now as a negative and Jesus as the positive in an abounding way is bringing his life and his power, then you might believe that he has the power to save you and you would also believe that you can add nothing to that salvation. You can add nothing to what he's going to bring to this earth. There are all kinds of individuals with their desire to perfect and make the world better. And the Bible does say that the Christian is like salt and light. We are like this preserving influence. What we do is we slow the decay. That's what salt does. We slow the rot of this world, but we don't reverse it. Once it's dead, it's dead and it's just rotting. But there's a Savior who's died for us, who's coming and His work reverses it all. He raises it back to life. He's promised a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness shall abide. Now, you can't add anything to do that. There's nothing you can do to somehow make His salvation more complete. You just receive it in your spiritual and moral weakness without any strength in your own. You receive it. When you do, well, you just confirm what Paul says. Therefore, in the very first verse of this chapter, therefore, having been justified by faith, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Jesus paid it all. All to him. That's why we say. Now, it's for the purpose of bringing us to this faith. This saving faith in an utter weakness clings to the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ alone that Paul tells us that the law entered onto the scene. And you see this in verse 20. In verse 20, and this is what we're going to consider the rest of this morning. It says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. This goes along with what we've just read in verses 13 and 14. So let me read to you verses 13 and 14 as well. There it says, for until the law, sin was in the world. People were just going on sinning. And by the way, here, Paul is speaking about the arrival of the law at Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments. And he's basically, until the Ten Commandments was given, sin was still in the world, but sin was not imputed. The word means it wasn't accounted for. It wasn't fully accounted for because it's not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even of those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Adam sinned in a way that other individuals hadn't sinned. We'll talk about this in just a moment. But people were, after Adam, they were still going on and sinning. When Moses came, they went on sinning as well. They would continue to go on sinning. But what happened is the law brought a clarity to, an understanding of the perfect will of God, that spoken law, that written law, that law that was written in stone that God gave to Moses, gave a clarifying of the law so that Men might take a greater account of it. They might understand it more. We spoke about this last week. You can be sick with a devastating disease and delay going to the doctor because you don't want to get the diagnosis. You're afraid of it. But eventually, you go and get a diagnosis. And at that moment, you take full account of your sickness. The doctor tells you what caused it, how it's progressing, how it will progress if it's not treated. And here's the deal. The doctor did not cause you to be sick. He just caused you to take an accounting of your sickness. That's what the law does. 
It brings you into account of the disease of sin within you, and that's why it was given on the mount. I want to talk about this a little bit more. It says here again, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. And so we need to talk about the law here, but just a couple of preliminary thoughts here about the law first to kind of lay a little bit of background and groundwork here. When we're considering this passage, we recognize that Paul is speaking about, when he says the law entered, he's speaking about the Ten Commandments that were given that codified, in a sense, and clarified the moral law of God. But what we need to understand is that that's the time and place in which the moral law of God was, in a sense, clarified and codified and stoned to the nation of Israel so they could read it, so that they could pledge themselves to it, so that they could follow in it. But here's what you need to understand. The moral law predates the written law. That's why men were still sinning. They didn't sin after the likeness as the Israelites sinned after the moral law was given. You know why? Because the Israelites knew what the law was and they still disobeyed it. They had a clear picture of the law and those before the law had an understanding of that law. The moral law was there, but they didn't understand it clearly. They were like the individual who knew they were not well, knew that there was something not right, but they had not yet gone before the doctor for the diagnosis. You need to understand, Paul even says this in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that before the law was written in code, the moral law is written on the heart of every person. So that every person has, in a sense, written and coded within them something of the moral law that God has placed upon us. And there are three reasons why I think this is true. The first reason is this. We're all made in the image of God. We've sinned and we're fallen and it's a broken image. But still, in these ruins are still a relic and a reflection of the image of God that we're made in. And the law is fashioned around God. The law is an expression of, an expressive of how we're to respond to the truth of who God is and how we're to live out the truth of who God is. So the law says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the reason is because you shall have God. He is the one true God. And you shall not make any graven images unto yourself because God is spirit and those who worship him are to worship him in spirit and in truth. And the Bible says you're not to tell a lie. Well, the reason is because God is true in every way and Your life is to be a reflection of your surrender and submission to the truth of all that God is. And so our life and all these commands are a responsiveness to what is true of God. And now, listen, if I've been made in the image of God, there is something of the reality and truth of who God is that is resonating even in the relic of every sinful fallen man. And it's like a beacon that sounds out from the ruins, somehow directing him in a certain manner of life and a certain expression that is true to his own making, to his own construction, having been made in the image of God. And therefore, there is this weak banner or pulsation or signaling of the law of God simply because we're made in the image of God, even though we're fallen, and even though we've fallen into sin, and we're a relic of what it was God intended us to be. Second reason for this is that God has also created the world, and He's created with physical laws that govern it, But this God has also created the world to be governed by moral laws. And so there are moral laws that govern this world because it's made by the hand of God. If you go against the moral laws of God, you eventually begin to move against the grain of God's creation. It doesn't work out well for you. Actually, there's a sense in which your conscience is receiving the signals that are coming to you, into you, not going out from you, but coming out from you from this creation God has made signaling to you how you ought to live your life in order to conform your life to the moral laws that God has made. You know, I've said this before. You don't actually 
break physical laws, you prove them. A guy jumps off of a cliff, he's not breaking the law of gravity, he's proving the law of gravity. He's going to go crash into the ground. And you don't break actually moral laws, you prove them. You begin to live a life of dishonesty, you begin to live a life of thievery, you begin to turn away from the laws that God's given you, and your life will prove it out, it'll become more difficult, more harder, you'll suffer as a result. And so there's this other thing, there's this creation that's been created with a moral law governing it that in a sense sends its messages back to us as well. And that's another reason why the moral law was there, it was in place. It's not clear because the fact is our consciences don't always receive that signal properly. Our consciences can become seared. Our consciences can become hardened. We can turn away from our consciences. We can project them into a wrong direction, but it's still there, still signaling to us. Now here's the third reason. That the moral law, in a sense, comes before the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. God's Word teaches us. You see this in John 16, verses 8 through 11, but you can also see and read about this in Genesis chapter 6. That the Spirit of God is working to contend with man. John says he's convicting men of sin and righteousness and judgment. And he began doing that the moment that Adam and Eve fell in sin in the garden. And that moment, they knew they were naked. They tried to close them. They wanted to be righteous, so they tried to find some fig leaves to kind of construct some kind of righteousness for themselves so they come in the presence of God. But when God came along, they knew they weren't ready. They knew they were facing judgment, and they ran and hid. That was the evidence that the Spirit of God was already beginning to convict them of sin and the need of righteousness and their lack of righteousness and judgment as a result. So this convicting work of the Holy Spirit also makes us sensitive to moral truths. But you know, Romans 1.18 says that we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. So although it's coming to us, it's imperfect, it's unclear. And so, in a sense, this moral law that's there and was there before the Ten Commandments were given were received in kind of a, a fuzzy manner. It was there, but it wasn't entirely clear. Men were not taking it into full account. Here's another thing I want to say about the law real quickly here. Whether you have this fuzzy understanding of the law or whether you've got the Ten Commandments written on a ledger on your desk so you read it every day before you begin your day, no matter how it is, this moral law produces a benefit straight away in an individual's life. Because if you live in a moral world, in a world that is created by a moral God with moral laws, and then you basically follow those laws, your life to that extent will improve. It will become easier to live. It's easier to live with the grain of the world than against the grain of what God has made and God has created. And if you don't follow those laws, you're working against the grain of creation. And as a result, this is a general rule, but life will get a little more difficult for you. You'll find hardships. Things won't work out the way you want it. And the more a person keeps that law, the more they work and live in a right kind of life according to that law, the more likely they're going to reap benefits in their life. And the more that a person violates that moral law, and the more that they turn away from those moral laws and they cheat the corners of that law, the more they're going to suffer individually, and the more the society around them is going to suffer, and they're going to go through and experience hardships. And that's just the reality. That's just an immediate benefit that you receive. Kind of like a, a practical outcome that can be derived from following the law. Now, without the Ten Commandments and without knowing the Ten Commandments, what you discover is all the major religions of the world basically have implemented key elements of the laws that are in the Ten Commandments. They miss a few, but they've got a lot of them in there. They've got any, they, you're not supposed to lie, you're not supposed to steal, and they don't think very highly of adultery, and you find all these things 
coded in their various religions and put before individuals. They have some portion of the commandment. And the reason is men have figured out by trial and error that living a morally life in a morally governed world works out the best for you. And they put that into their religion. And they put that as a part of the religion. But now let me share with you the negative part of this practicality of following the law. You can be in one of those religions, a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim. You can be in those different religions and you can be in a false belief system and think that you're all good because you follow the moral laws in your life. And you can actually point to the fact that your life is measurably better than the person who doesn't follow those laws. So I'm following those laws and I'm doing them all, so my life is okay and I'm right with God. And you might even begin to think that you're right with God and you're even going to heaven because, well, you're better by comparison than a lot of other folks. Because your life is not as tumultuous as I can prove it. See, my life is working out better than your life and it's not proof that you're going to heaven. It's just proof that you live in a moral universe. It's evidence that there's benefit in going with the grain of what God has created, but it's not evidence of any saving benefit that you have before God. And this is what I'll tell you. No matter how faithful you are in following that law, even if you've never known the Ten Commandments and you're just following some rules you've constructed for your own life, no matter how good you think you are, you still sin. You still sin. You don't keep your own expectations for your own life, much less understanding the clear way God, a holy God's expectation for you. And you actually sin much more than you admit to yourself and much more than you admit to others. You do. In fact, you sin a lot more than you even know. Than you even know. Thus, Thus we come to the real purpose of the law. And this is what Paul is talking about in verse 20 of Romans 5. This is the second point here. The law was given to increase our awareness of our own sinfulness. The law was given that the offense might abound. That we might see it. It might be plain to us. It might become clear to us. That it would increase our awareness of our judgment. It would increase our awareness of the death that we deserve. It would increase our awareness of our complete powerlessness to transform or deliver ourselves by our own actions and activity. The law entered that the offense might abound. Now the Jew was listening to what Paul was saying. And the Jew was kind of having a little bit of problem with what Paul was saying. Because Paul was basically saying there's two people in humanity. There are those people who initially, this is true of all of us, are all in Adam, right? And they're all their lives are centered around Adam and their lives are just the outcome of the sin of Adam coming upon them. And then there are the people who are, and this is the only other people, the people who are all in Christ. And they're transformed in Christ. And they've entered into a transformed righteousness that comes through Christ alone. And they are the ones who have the promise of everlasting life. The Jew says, hey, wait a second. Look, I know my history. And there's a little middle ground here. And we're in the middle ground. You're forgetting one other important person in history. You're forgetting Moses. And Moses gave us the law. And we're the people of the law. And that's where our nation, our nation was developed when we stood before Mount Sinai and the law was given. And that's when we became a people of God. Now what they forgot was that before they came before Mount Sinai and received the law, their salvation as a nation came when they offered up a Passover lamb to deliver them from the avenging angel of death in Egypt. And they took that lamb and they applied the blood of that lamb to the doorposts of their homes. And they went inside those homes and they faithfully consumed as a type of consuming or taking in the sacrifice that God had provided for them for their sins, that lamb as a family. And they forget that they were a nation of slaves 
and their salvation came when God parted the Red Sea and God delivered them by His own strong arm. They didn't do anything. They didn't part the waters. God did it all. And God took them through the Red Sea and that's when they were saved and they were delivered. And it wasn't until after they were saved and after they were freed from the condemnation and bondage of their slavery that God then gave them a law to follow, to benefit their lives and go with them. They forget these things. So they say, listen, okay, we'll admit that there are these people, these Gentiles that are of Adam, and we'll admit that there is new life to be found in Jesus Christ, but you're forgetting us. We're the people who found our salvation in the law of Moses. Now, Paul is saying, listen, what Adam brought about is so complete. It inundates so completely all the world. There's not room for a third party here. There has to be only one great party, one great person to sweep it all aside the other way, and that's Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says, you don't understand what the law was given for. Here's what the law was given for. God gave it so that sin might abound and might increase. God gave it to the nation of Israel so they would be the first to recognize the sin in their own life. They would be the first to recognize their own weakness and their own moral failings. And so that they would rush back to the provision that God gave them in the law as well. You know what that provision was? When God gave the law, He also gave to Moses all the sacrificial system. They would rush back by faith to seek mercy and forgiveness and the sacrifice. And here's the truth. What Paul reveals, and you can read this, the whole book of Hebrews is this. Jesus Christ is the absolute, complete fulfillment of all the sacrifices. He's everything. All of them were just a type pointing to Him in His full sacrifice for our sins. He is the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The law was given to increase your sense of sin to drive you to the Lamb. To drive you to the Savior. To drive you to Jesus Christ. The law was given. The law was given so your sin would increase. Your recognition of your just punishment would increase. In order that you might turn to what it is that God had provided for you. In order that you might be drained of any sense of your own moral strength. You turn to Him. I think times there's this kind of a stereotype that's made of certain Christians that all we do is browbeat people about their sins, that we're just these heavy-handed people that want to kind of peg down the whack-a-moles, you know, pound down the heads of everybody and talk about their sins. Yet if you understand that this is true, you have to talk about it. You have to talk about it. Sin has to increase. Your understanding of it has to abound in your life. You have to recognize the offenses of your life. You have to do so in order that you might repent and believe in Him. That's the single message, repent and believe. Because God has provided an answer for that sin. An abounding of grace beyond anything that you can imagine or anything you could understand. Law is meant to increase your understanding of your sins and drive you to the cross where your sins are graciously forgiven in Christ. You come to the law and think by it you can prove that you're good enough for God, good enough for heaven, that you'll add your two pennies to the moral value of the work of Christ at the cross. And that these last bits of change from your pocket will get you in. You don't understand. God did not give the law for us to use as a means to prove ourselves righteous. He gave the law to us so that he could prove to us that we're all sinners. That's it. Look at Romans 3, verses 19 and 20. Paul is saying this over and over again. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, 
that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law entered, that sin may increase. This has been the repeated theme that Paul has stated over again in the book of Romans, and there's a reason why. The reason he preaches it over and over again is because over and over again, the heart of man trusts and leans into his own ability to save himself, or somehow make the last and important contribution to his own salvation. We want to claim some of the glory in our own saving. But God says sin must increase in your understanding. And you must come to see that you are hopeless in a hopeless situation as an ungodly sinner condemned under God's wrath, an enemy of God, and without any strength to save yourself. So that God gets all the glory in saving you. It's all of God. So Paul says when he came before the law, he said it put him to death. Actually, in Romans 7, 9, Paul says this. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Sin abounded before the law. He was a Pharisee. He was a person who obeyed all the laws and all the rules and thought if I'm just good enough, I'll mount my way up into heaven. And then he came before the law. His image of himself came crashing down and the man that he constructed and thought he was died entirely and good riddance on God's mind. God's purposes. In order that as he lay before the father, weeping away his own sin, and clinging to the one provision God has given to him in the son, Jesus dying for his sins, he might receive new life and be made a new creation in Christ. So if you're using the law as a practical measure to improve your life, well, that'll work for you to some extent. You're going to put yourself on the right side of creation and your life is going to get a little better. So if you're, look, if you're just a moral person, life is going to go better. I'm going to tell you, if you develop some habits of highly effective people, if you just follow the moral rules and the moral laws, your life is going to improve. It's going to get better. And so I, it's not an unwise thing to do. But it's not the purpose of the law. Its purpose is to reveal to you that you're a sinner. Actually, it's to reveal to you that you're an exceedingly great sinner. And a salvation that will one day come to turn all the world right is needed to turn you right as well. It's a salvation that comes through Jesus Christ alone. So here's the third quick. This is it. Not only does the law cause sin to abound, but as sin increases in our understanding, the law brings to us the super increase of grace that covers all that sin. Against the tide of the world's sin and against the tide of my own sin, God has met it all with something greater, something that makes the river of sin run backwards and eventually run away altogether. God meets our sins with the abounding grace and free gift of Jesus Christ, His perfect sinless life, His final and full payment on our behalf. One of our favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's His righteousness. His life perfectly given to us. That is grace abounding. That is grace outpoured. Here's our application. Believe the tide of sin in your life cannot be turned away by your own effort. Believe it. Believe the tide of sin in all the world can only be turned away by the same one who must turn away the tide of sin in your own life. 
and believe that He can and will do it if you believe in Himself alone. Believe in Christ for yourself and believe in yourself for nothing. Don't thwart the purpose of the law. See your sin before it, before anything else. And then look into that law and see something. Okay, so before this law, I just see my sin. Then look again and see where you've failed in sin. See a perfect Savior who kept the law and every measure perfectly. And then when you look in the law, see your just condemnation and death and the just wrathful judgment of God against you because of your sins. And then in the law, see your Savior who took that death in your place, took your sin upon Himself at the cross, and died for you. Now let the grace of His salvation increase as you trust by faith in Him alone. Finish by reading to you a poem written by Robert Murray McChain. It's called Jehovah Sikeno. Jehovah Sikeno is the Lord our righteousness. I once was a stranger to grace and to God, but I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in love of Christ on the tree, the Lord our righteousness was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me with light from on high, then legal fears shook me. I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self I could see. The Lord our righteousness, my Savior must be. My tears all vanished before that sweet name. My guilty fears banished with boldness I came to drink at that fountain life giving and free. The Lord our righteousness is all things to me. The Lord our righteousness, my treasure, my boast. The Lord our righteousness, I'll never be lost. And thee I shall conquer by flood and by field. My cable, my anchor, my breastplate, my shield. Let's bow our heads. Outside of the poetic voice of the person who just cannot help but write a song because of the glory of what he's discovered. Bring us down, dear God, to the simple and plain truths. There's nothing we can do, nothing we could do to save ourselves. But what is required has been done. Live that sinless life in our place as our representative. Gone to a cross that heaped upon himself the hell we deserve. Suffering the eternal Son of God for our sins. In order that he might extinguish it. Pay the payment. And as we receive in what he's given and believe in him. Bestow upon us the grace, the gift, the free gift. The free gift of everlasting life. Oh God, then knowing that. Knowing that we're not bartering for something. Knowing that we're not buying something from you. Knowing that somehow we're not fulfilling it by our own action. We just are captive to grace. You own us in a way that we could never be owned if we contributed to this. Because it's all of you. It's all of your love. It's all of your goodness. Oh, how we want to live for you and please you and serve you. Oh, how we want the dynamic strength of our life to be now the pulsation of life that is ours through Jesus Christ alone and by His power and strength alone that we might be able to say with those who cry out before the throne, not unto us be glory, not unto us be glory and honor and praises, but unto you be glory and honor and praises because you have redeemed 
a people to yourself. You have redeemed me and saved me. God, I pray to your God for the simple freedom that comes. Trusting you for these things. We're all present here. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.